0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, turn it to Ephes- Ecclesiastes, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Not even uh, 20 years ago, they opened as they always did at 8 o'clock in the morning. A few years later, it was 6 a.m. open time. Then it became 5 a.m., then 4 a.m., and then came the 12 midnight time slot, which has dominated the past decade. But not to be undone, this year would be different. This year, our culture would hurriedly finish dinner to ensure we had plenty of time to get to Target or Walmart, which opened at 8 p.m. this year on Thanksgiving Day. But oh, oh, what a disappointment many felt that evening. For despite a prompt arrival at 8 p.m., instead of being met by the face of that pleasant Walmart greeter, Instead, it became quite clear that a thousand other shoppers were already in line. The ones in back having arrived a few hours before you, the ones in front having camped out for days, even weeks. You know what I'm talking about Black Friday. Raise your hands, you guilty people. Black Friday participants, raise your hands high. Don't be shy. We have a few, alright. Anyone camp out? Okay, good. I think there are a few more Black Friday participants than led on there. Only in America, only in America can we go round the table sharing about the things that truly matter only to finish dinner driving and searching hastily for the things that matter not. And now it's not just Black Friday. No, no. Not to be outdone. There's Small Business Saturday. And there's Cyber Monday. For whatever reason, they left Sunday alone. I'm really not sure why, because my thought is that 7-Elevens should really jump on Slurpee Sunday. Uh... I know I would camp out for Slurpee Sunday. There might be a few of you, but Black Friday, folks, is uh, it's really uh, quite aptly named. Retailers call it Black Friday because it's the day they bring in hordes of profit. But were you to ask uh, for a spiritual reason, why? It's called Black Friday. You might be given a different answer. A spiritual person would call it Black Friday, not for how profitable it is, but because it is often symptomatic of the black hole that such consumerism and materialism can form in our souls. In science, a black hole is an astronomical element in space where gravity prevents anything from escaping. The outer rim of a black hole is called an event horizon. And it marks the point of no return. Once any mass or any light enters that event horizon, the outer rim of a black hole, it gets completely absorbed. Never to be seen again. Folks, Black Friday in and of itself is not evil. But without careful consideration of why we instinctively desire to shop and consume on the day after or sometimes now the very day upon which we are to be giving thanks without any spiritual consideration, such consumerism can become a black hole in our soul that sucks out our light and robs us of all that is true and good when we wrap our minds around material things, when we cover ourselves in consumerism, we end up losing much. And so the title of this message today, Robbed While Robed in Black. When, we do, when all we do is clothe ourselves with a consumer mentality, we end up being robbed of all that is good. Black Friday may be over. But its effects can still plague us during this time of year in which our minds and our eyes are to be focused on much higher things. King Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, had something to say to his culture. And ironically, 3,000 years later, it still holds true for ours. Would you stand with me as we read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5? Ecclesiastes chapter 5 the words and wisdom of King Solomon, beginning in verse 10. He writes, "He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase." This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those same riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he, may carry, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil, just exactly as he came, so shall he go. For what profit has he who has labored for the wind all his days? He also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Our Lord, would you open up our eyes today to see your Scripture clearly on the topic of money, uh, on consumerism, on focusing on the things of this world, and may we, as a result of this time together in your word, may we be lifted higher, our eyes higher, as a result of this teaching. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Verse 10 again. Solomon writes, "...he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity." Solomon says, look, it is vain. It is futile. It is hopeless. It is empty to lust after money and things. Our income, our money, what we buy, what we possess, these things should never be the basis of our happiness. "...we suppose more money and fancy things will bring us joy." But they always disappoint. In fact, it's often the case that as we acquire more and more things, it ironically takes longer and longer to actually find satisfaction. Paul says it's it's like a trap. It's like a human snare on your outline. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, a trap. Into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Paul and Solomon both speak to the fact that money, the love of money, leads to a rotting. Inside of us. Take a look at verse 11 in Ecclesiastes 5. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? I know a wise man uh, in the church who once said to me many years ago, he said, Neil, uh, he says, this is, I found this to be true of, of all people. He says, regardless of what you make, regardless of your annual income, you will find a way to spend every dollar of it by year's end. First, I, when I first heard that, I, I really didn't believe it. Because I didn't have kids. <laughs> and Because my wife and I could actually save a little bit then. Um, and I thought, yeah, really? No matter how much you make, whether you're lower class, middle class, upper class, no matter how much you make, Chances are, at the end of the day, you'll find a way to spend every dollar of it by year's end. You know, I'm finding it to be more true as the years go by. Did you know that 60%, 60% of American households would be broke if they missed one paycheck? 60% of American households live paycheck to paycheck. Of course, in some cases, that is not due to negligence or lavish living. Some of us have been laid off. Some of us genuinely live as meagerly as possible, and yet still can barely set aside any money for savings. But if we're looking a little more closely at our finances, I think many of us would be ashamed that we're only one paycheck away from overdrawing our account. Most of us in this auditorium, I would argue, would be considered middle class in America. But as middle suggests, while we have less than some, we also have more than others. Thus, we are quite capable of cutting back our expenses and living more prudently. If you live paycheck to paycheck, Would you try and exercise some godly discipline? Some godly wisdom in the coming year? Would you set aside a paycheck or two paychecks worth of income in the coming year? What a wise and sensible resolution that would be. Let us not find a way to spend every penny at year's end. Let us break that trend that 60% of American households now participate in. But regardless of income levels, most of us, as we know, most of us spend every dollar by the the end of the year. Yet still, we suppose in our minds, in our heads, we have this idea that making just a little bit more will solve all their problems. If I just made a little bit more, I could save. If I just made a little bit more, I could put away. If I just made a little bit more, things would be Okay. But it doesn't bring us happiness, does it? Solomon says it doesn't. Take a look at verse 11. He said, verse 11 again, "...when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners, except to see them with their eyes? Some who are more well-off than others know well of this teaching. And the rest of us would do well to pay heed to its warning. More money usually means more heartache and headaches." others will begin to seek you out when you have more money you will learn of friends you did not know you had when you make more money all because you have a little extra cash and it can actually bring great harm to your personal relationship with others you've i could tell you story after story of lottery winners who went on to have horrific relationships in their marriage with their children with their grandchildren with their extended family with their friends all because They came into a little bit of cash. More money means more headaches. And with many family and friends in need, and now so many more tax advisors and accountants and lawyers and stockbrokers and property managers, all because you have a little bit more, it seems that everyone wants their fair share. And so Solomon aptly writes, What profit have the owners of all that money except to see it with their own eyes? This can also make us bitter. In fact, some translators in verse 11, note this, some translators translate the Hebrew words to see them, that is to see the money, with the words to protect the money, to guard the money, to look after the money. In other words, the one with much can become so buried in material requests from others, so burdened, with a pressure to provide for others, that it causes him or her to actually become like Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. To become the person who ends up giving away nothing at all, and instead hoards all that he has. Such an interpretation of verse 11 is actually bolstered by what follows in verse 12. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or whether he eats much, but the abundance of the rich won't permit him to sleep. Do you wish to sleep soundly at night? Money won't buy it. Solomon says hard work will. The man or woman who labors each day as unto the Lord is the one who will sleep soundly. That is to say, they will be at rest in their soul, knowing they're working hard. They're earning a a decent living. An honorable living. But physical and emotional unrest comes to the one who is obsessed with money and things. In the night, they fret about how to keep what they have. They buy, they buy, and they dream of more. They hoard and collect, and yet they're still plagued with a spirit of depression. The more they try to buy and keep, the more their soul is robbed of joy, and of goodness. Solomon says, I've seen it with my own eyes. Trust me, I've watched this. Look at verse 13. There is a severe evil which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune when he begets a son and there is nothing in his hand. Solomon says, I've seen this with my own eyes. Trust me, Solomon lived it in part. He says, I've seen it time and again, there's a severe evil which I've seen, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. Again, the word kept there, the Hebrew word shamar, it means to guard, to protect, to hoard. When a person hoards their money, When they hold on to material things, it's going to be to their own hurt. Solomon says, I've seen it before. A man holds so tightly to his riches, and yet those same riches perish. They disappear through misfortune, and he's got nothing left for his children. The word misfortune there, rabuinyan in Hebrew, meaning bad investment. We're human. We're not perfect. We endeavor to live as God would have us live, but we know we make mistakes, and there will be times when we gain money, when we gain profit, when we increase, and there will also be times when we lose money, when we throw it away on bad invest- in bad investments, be they bad investments in a stock or bad investment in a retail item that we've purchased. And when we have a misfortune like that, We've got no one to blame but ourselves. But what do we do? We pick ourselves back up. Why? Because we don't trust in riches. We make it our prayer as the prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30. Take a look at that on the back of your outline. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. This is Agur's prayer. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Instead, feed me with the food allotted to me, God, lest I be full and I deny you and say, Who is The Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and I profane the name of my God. Agur said, Lord, let me just be content. I don't want riches. I don't want poverty. I don't want riches because if I do, I might get prideful and look up and say, Who's the Lord? I've done all this. But if I don't make enough, I may have to scramble and steal. And I know that that would profane you, Lord. And so he's calling out to God for a balanced life. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to pay my bills. I'm going to trim the expenses where I can. I'm going to live reasonably a balanced and wise life, knowing full well that riches are not, things are not what's going to satisfy me. we remember as a people the words that Solomon writes in verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return, to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Such knowledge for us is comfort. Comfort. It's comforting to know that you, you entered this world with nothing and you will leave with nothing. That is to say, nothing of material gain will you take. You entered with nothing, you'll leave with nothing. For us, that's actually comforting. Because we know what we have. We don't have earthly riches. We have spiritual riches. We don't have physical riches. We have eternal riches. We have the riches that come to those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and to those who have trusted Jesus, you have the greatest riches of all. You have the riches of eternal salvation. God has saved your very soul. And when you die, you will be in heaven with God forever. No riches are greater. Such knowledge for us is comforting to know we don't come in with anything, we don't leave with anything, except... Christ in us. But for the person who loves riches, for the person who's focused on, spirit, on material things, for the one who is consuming and consuming and seeking material goods, he or she reads verse 15 with terror. And he thinks, I've spent my whole life coveting money. And riches and things. If I can't take these things with me when this life is over, I will have nothing. Terror for the one who is so obsessed with stuff. Solomon has seen such a person, he knows the terror that they feel. He describes it in verse 16. And so, and this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who's labored for the wind? Here's his profit. All his days he also eats in darkness. And he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. We suppose... Just a little bit more money, Lord, and then I'd be happy. Lord, just a little better car. I just want an upgrade. Lord, a, a, a bigger TV. I, the 50 incher, God, the 50. Lord, I know I have 25 pairs of shoes, but I need one more. That's my daughter talking at three years of age. <laughs> all of us deal with some kind of covetousness. You could all name something. For some, it's cars. For some, it's homes. For some, it's clothes. For some, it's TVs. What's yours? But here's, here's the end of the matter. Ray Steadman writes, These people... They suffer from destination sickness. Having arrived at where they always wanted to be, and having everything they always wanted to have, they do not want anything they've got. How true that is. Once you've received that thing you've been coveting and wanting and desiring and and asking for, you get it, and the next day you're on to the next thing. Cecil John Rhodes was a late 19th century uh, foreign businessman. He was born in England, but he traveled to South Africa, to Africa, Uh, to begin explorations uh, in business. He became a very successful businessman in Africa. He became uh, uh, involved in mining, particularly mining for diamonds. You may know him as the founder of the diamond company De Beers. Did I pronounce that right? De Beers once held 90% of the world's diamond supply. They now still hold a good 40%. Rhodes was the founder of the African state of Rhodesia, which he named after himself. You and I know it today as Zimbabwe. South Africa has a Rhodes University, which is named after Cecil John Rhodes. You may have also heard of the Rhodes Scholarship, which is funded by his estate. At the end of his life, Cecil Rhodes said this, I've found much in Africa. Diamonds, gold, and land are mine, but now I must leave them all behind. Not a thing I've gained can be taken with me. I have not sought eternal treasure. Therefore, I actually have nothing at all. This was one of the richest men of the 19th century. He had everything and on his deathbed these were his words at the end of his days Cecil Rhodes was robbed of all good things because he had robed himself in profits in material things in money in riches in stuff he was a man focused, a man focused on making millions upon millions of dollars, deepening the black of his bank account, yet dying on his bed, it was as if all his riches had been dumped into a black hole. Would that Cecil Rhodes have known the words of Paul in first Timothy six? He writes, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Paul said there are greater things to focus on. and and Unless we suppose that that admonition is just to the rich in verse 17, it's to all of us. I mean, Americans, by comparison, we're all rich to the rest of the world. And so this admonition is for us. Last Sunday, we participated in a time-honored tradition at Coast, the Thanksgiving Praise Service. And as you know, uh, we, we came forward and spoke words of praise. We put the microphone in the center and and men, women, children, young and old came down to the front and we just for an hour uh, gave praise. But you know, it was funny. It was uncanny, really, what we did not hear. We did not hear one person say that they were thankful for their car or their house or their giant TV or their shiny new shoes, or their fashionable new clothes. We did not hear one person give thanks for their income, or their bank account, or their credit line, or their portfolio. None of these things were mentioned once. Instead, we heard men get up and praise their wives. Women get up and praise their husbands. We heard children come forward and thank their parents and their loved ones. We thank God for the blessings of new life, new babies. We thank God for the generations of family that are in our church, for our grandparents. We thank God for the trials, for the hardships. We thank God for His provision at just the right time. We thank God for His sustenance. We thank God for His healing in sickness. We thank God for the support and the care of our church family. We thank God for the genuine friendships that we experience at Coast. We thank God for the growing intimacy that we are sensing with Him. We thank God for the visible answers that He has shown us to prayer. We heard our people from the bottom of their hearts give thanks and praise to God for the things that really mattered to them. And not one of them was material. All of them were related to family, our faith, or our God. As we leave Thanksgiving and enter into a Christmas season, may we center our hearts again on what really matters. We already spoke from the bottom of our heart of what really matters. Now may we live it day by day. I'm pleased uh, to begin next week a new series. It's been some time since we've gone through a, a book in the Scriptures. I want to begin next week a study on the book of Colossians, the epistle or the letter to the church at Colossae. It's an epistle of Paul's that will center our hearts on the one, whom we should be thinking of this season on the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire first chapter is dedicated to Him. It's centered on Him. It's focused on Him. And as we enter Christmas, with all the Black Fridays and the Small Business Saturdays and the Slurpee Sundays and the Cyber Mondays and all the rest, may we truly find this season our center who is Jesus, our Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, thank You for giving us perspective. God, we know, we've already testified what truly matters. It is our family, our faith, our great and mighty salvation that comes through our Lord, Jesus Christ. God, thank You that it's not stuff, it's not things that matter. We've already demonstrated that. Now, God, let that sink deep because it's so easy to get distracted, especially in this season of the year. Lord, all of us are susceptible on some level spending too much, living too closely to the wire when we need not. God, let us make wiser decisions, more prudent decisions. Let us continue to use our money wisely most especially for the cause of Christ. And so, Lord, we want to first give to you before we give to one another. May we keep our eyes on you, Lord, as we enter season of Advent. May we keep our eyes on Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.